morning. I'm Joan Hogan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Prairie Doc radio program. Dr. Rick Holm, our medical expert, is in the studio ready to answer your questions. Dr. Holm's specialty is internal medicine. He's worked with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and has served as a clinical professor at the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Joan Holm. And I'm so happy to welcome to our program today another Prairie Doc, Dr. Jonathan Melema, the new did I pronounce that correct? Yes. All yep, right. The new ear, nose, and throat specialist at Avira Medical Group. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Good to have you with us. So, I mean, we, we, we've been with a, without uh, ENT since Dr. Uh, uh, Robert Reitz uh, retired, and uh, what a great guy he was. And uh, we miss him, but, uh, you know, retirement is one of those things that happens. Uh, and then you get young blood and um, and a new way of thinking and uh, latest stuff. I see that you trained at University of Minnesota and uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and you're originally from Minnesota. Yeah, I was. Uh, I've lived most of my life in Wilmer, uh, Minnesota, and uh, I spent from. Co- basically college to medical school living in the Twin Cities and then from there moved on to Cincinnati, Ohio for five years for residency. So Wilmer, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You're from Candy, Ohio County, Minnesota. That is correct. You know? And my relatives uh, lived in uh, Wilmer mm. or in the region, you know, on a farm nearby um, before they decided to get free land uh, and homestead in uh, North Dakota. So they went out to Bowman, North Dakota, where it's like near Lemon, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's desolate. <laughs> and they. That's why the land was free, Rick. Uh, it was it. <laughs> there was nothing there. <laughs> there was nothing there. There was a train station, you know. And um, so they farmed there for a number of years and uh, did well. Bought up a bunch of other uh, farms that had failed. And they did well in North Dakota. I mean, it was virgin land, so there was no, there was, uh, it hadn't petered out. I mean, the energy of the prairie was still with it for quite a few seasons. Hmm. So you're of uh, Norwegian or Swedish extraction, or what? <laughs> the, what is it? Uh, mostly Norwegian and Dutch. Oh, actually, yes. <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I take that. it you have some Swedish blood in you. Yeah, there's some Swedes up in in Kandahar County too, <laughs> so I know that. Well, that's it. I was that's the whole thing I have about Wilmer. So you're into ears, nose, and throat. I mean, what is your uh, what is your most common uh, clinical visit when people see you? Um, I would say most of the general uh, ENTs are going to see. Kids with tubes and tonsil problems, you know, ear infections are probably the most common things that we see. But uh, with some of the vaccinations, the ear infections and tube rates have gone down, but it's still a very, very common surgery done. Um, And then for kids who have snoring or, you know, recurrent throat infections, obviously tonsils and adenoids are a a very common surgery that we do as well. So it sounds like you work with a lot of young people. Yeah, we do see a lot of lot of children. Yep, uh, one of the things I liked about ENT is the broad uh, range of uh, problems that you can take care of, as well as the ages that you can uh, get to see. So, yeah. you're not limited to one age group. You're hitting them all, and with uh, tonsillectomies and ad- adenoids removal and adenoid work, that is young kids, isn't it? You impressed me or caught me off guard when you said 
because of the um, different shots kids are getting that the tonsils aren't as much a problem? Can Not you the tonsils, that? but the ear infection is one of the more common causes of ear infections. Uh, Haemophilus influenza is a bacteria that a lot of kids are getting in, immunized for, and so they're um, not having as frequent of infections. So uh, that's another good reason to have immunizations. Yes, definitely. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't I mean, realize you see, that made you a see difference. the results. I mean, the uh, miserable kids with ear infections uh, has reduced because of the vaccination. Definitely. I Although we still have plenty of uh, issues because w- some of the risk factors for recurring ear infections, certainly it's a family family history, tobacco exposure, even secondhand smoke, even if the family doesn't smoke inside the house, just the smoke on the clothes is enough to cause an increased risk. And then daycare, which uh, you know is a necessary thing for a lot of families. So that just puts a lot of kids close together where they get a lot of viruses spreading back and forth and results in a lot of ear infections. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I am a, my wife ran a daycare center for eight years something like that and uh, uh, we looked at that increased risk of infection but there's also decreased risk of leukemia in children because of it's like uh, the the exposure to the infection increases your immune system to defend against Hmm. those kinds of things or uh, so it's it's a, a tit for tat type of a thing. That's yeah. interesting. I had no idea that there would be reduced incidence of leukemia with kids who are at daycare. Yeah. Huh. And, uh, you know, with those increased defenses uh, comes a lot of socialization, a lot of knowing how to play fair, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, those things that uh, uh, you, uh, that are important in, in making the emotional maturity of a, of a baby. Sure, it makes a difference. Well, we're so pleased to have a guest with us today, and uh, we do need to take a break now. But as you know, our program is generated by our audience's call-in questions. And fortunately for us, we just had two questions come in just before the program began. For you two people, we will get to your questions after this. We need to take a break now. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK. Some of you are listening from the Brookings area on your AM radio, and others of you are listening right now from anywhere in the world via the KBRK Internet live stream. Either way, we invite your questions at 605-692-1430. We will return following this informative message from the Avira Medical Group. Autism Spectrum Disorder is a developmental disability that can cause significant social, communication, and behavioral challenges. Many people with ASD also have different ways of learning, paying attention, or reacting to things. Signs of Autism Spectrum Disorder begin during early childhood and typically last throughout a person's life. The cause of autism is unknown. If you have questions about your child's development, talk with your primary care provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I tried to tell Rick Holm that I might be, we might be getting too old for the show. He decided maybe it was just me. It, it was, I can't get it. I typed this it, up. It was like uh, the Lone Ranger said to Tonto. He said, we're in trouble. We're circled by all these Indians. In Kim- and uh, Tonto said, what do you mean by we? We. Kimosabi. Tonto had no problem. <laughs> well, our guest today it's is... It's an old, the, oh, old, bad, old, 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 terrible joke. But bad joke. Our uh, guest today is Dr. Jonathan Melema, who is the new ENT, ear, nose, and throat 
physician with the Brookings Medical Clinic. We're happy to have you here. And uh, Bob mentioned at the break, one time it was ear, eye, nose, and throat. That got broken up, right? Yeah, back in the 1970s, it split into ophthalmology and uh, what we would call otolaryngology or ENT. So the... Um, the eyes just went separate, right? The <laughs> eyes went uh, kind of cross-eyed, yeah. <laughs> run right. off to the left right. or something. Well, we had yeah. a woman in her 60s calling with a question. I promised we'd get to her question okay. before we cover anything else. And she said that she walks three miles twice a week, but she has pain in her arches. She wants to know who she should go to for an I- initial visit. And before she gets in for that visit, should she use heat or ice? Okay. Well, the an- I, I'm I'm not going to throw it over to John. John, yes, your nose and throat. Leave she needs her tonsils out. <laughs> Take her tonsils <laughs> out. See if that helps. Okay. But uh, so she's probably getting a little plantar fasciitis because she's walking more than she used to or has usually walked. If a person walks a mile a day or three miles twice a, a week, uh, you know. Uh, all your life, your body gets used to it. When you start up, and even if it's uh, maybe two years into it, you can get uh, where there's a tendon, uh, a, a, an inflammation of the attachment of the plantar fascia, which is sort of like the bowstring of a of a bow that's been, uh, you know, if you leave a bow unstrung, it's straight. You bend it and you put the string on, and and it and it keeps it bent Tight. as a bow. And that string is like the fascia underneath the arch, and it keeps the arch bent like a bow. But when you're walking and you have that bounce, that's a great thing. Uh, But after doing too much or whatever it is that causes that inflammation, where the bowstring attaches to the bow, in the bow or the stern of that foot, (laughs) the front or the back of the foot, that inflammation can occur. And people get... um, uh, fasciitis I mean pain at uh, the level of the fascia and it can be quite painful and can take you down keep you from walking which is a terrible thing so the first thing I would suggest is make those two miles not three or make it one mile a day to, uh, to get about the same distance and uh, I think that uh, if you can stretch your feet before and after sleep at night or naps and if you can also uh, try a combination of either ice and or uh, heat. You know, sometimes one helps one person and uh, the other helps the other. So I like the idea of trying either one. I, I, they say ice turns off inflammation, heat increases healing. So you've got turning off inflammation or increasing healing. Maybe you want to do both. So okay. I, th- I think that that would be it. The other thing is, is if you get an arch support, uh, you buy an arch support, and there's a place in town apparently now where you can go in and get your feet measured. You step in the, into the deal. Bob, do you know where that is? It's out by Lowe's. Out by Lowe's. You can step into it. They'll give you a form. Uh, uh, you'll make a form that measures your foot, and then they'll pour a mold and give you a, a, an exact to your perfect uh, measurement an arch support. The other is Dr. Scholl's arch supports can work if they if you get the right one. And and they will take the pressure off where the bowstring attaches to the bow and turn and reduce some of that inflammation. Uh, so that's 
So yes. you may not need to see a physician correct in immediately. If you try these steps that Dr. Holmes suggested, yeah. if the pain doesn't go away, then you're probably better off getting in. You, but you know, or, or see a podiatrist who will tell you that about the same thing. About the same thing you just told. So <laughs> podiatrists are good, and you can see a podiatrist if you call the Brookings Clinic. Yeah. They will tell you what podiatrists are available. Okay, thanks for the call, and thanks for the question. Yes, thank um, you. We, don't, we, we have another caller who called in just before the show began and wanted to know about floaters in the eyes and retinal care. She is concerned about floaters in her eye. Yeah, so she's probably about 60, and, she, and the, 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 the vitreous humor is separating from the retina. So this bag of juice that is inside your eye and keeps it filled up has gets when we get about 60, 65 like I I did, it pulls away from the retina, and then you have floaters floating around. And I'll tell you exactly if you go to the very very best retinal specialist, retinal specialists will say, I've got good news for you. It's not a dangerous thing. Bear with it, live with it, and hang in there. And that's generally what will be said to you. Do the floaters kind of disappear after a little after bit? After a while, you kind of get used to them. Um, oh, okay. My, I had a, uh, my float, my uh, uh, vitreous humor sac was attached to my focus, my the, the central spot of my focus. And it was distorting my vision, and therefore they, they took me to surgery and removed the vitreous humor and filled it up with saline. And the problem was, uh, but then that begets a lens uh, destruction and then you need to have basically cataract surgery a year or two after that. I mean, it's, and then there's glaucoma that can follow that. So, I mean, what I'm saying to you is the best idea is leave well enough alone if you're not losing your distinct vision. As long as your vision is good and you have a little floater, live with it. Live with it. It'll okay. kind of go away. You get used to it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the call. We had another question who wanted to know, when it comes to sinus problems, what do you think of having surgery? Do you think it's always necessary? Or when do you suggest yeah. surgery for L sinus? Let's ask Jonathan about that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, sinus uh, surgery. Yes. Oof well, uh, sinusitis obviously is one of the more common problems that people visit the doctor for. So there's billions of dollars in medications that get prescribed for this and uh, a lot of medical visits to primary care as well as to ENT. But um, as far as people who can benefit from surgery are typically the ones who never get any relief or long-term relief from medications, especially the ones who have three months or longer of uh, persistent sinus symptoms. Usually prior to doing surgery, we try to be more aggressive with some of the medication regimens and, and including rinsing the nose with saline and using uh, nasal steroid sprays to try and reduce inflammation. Uh, the antibiotics are still a part of the treatment, but in reality, the antibiotics are probably the, the, uh, not the, the most important part of the yeah. treatment for that. And uh, unfortunately, we've kind of gotten everybody used to uh, antibiotics being the thing you need when you have green drainage in your nose, when the uh, science now doesn't support that as being actually uh, as beneficial as we used to think. So the people who persist beyond three, three months and end up seeing me uh, will usually get a, a regimen for about a three to four week period, and then we have them come back and get a CAT scan of their sinuses. The CAT scans are the, the best study because you can't um, really fool the CAT scanner. Uh, if you have sinus disease, it will show up. If you don't, a lot of people have nasal symptoms but don't truly have sinus disease. So that's kind of our, 
the test that can really show is there something can be surgically improved. And most of the time, surgery is aimed at improving the drainage pathways to the sinuses. And um, some of the sinuses are just single large cavities like the ones in your cheeks or the maxillary sinuses, but the ethmoids between the eyes can be a lot more tricky because they're, they're more like a honeycomb with a bunch of interconnected air cells. And to open all those up, sometimes it becomes a little uh, more difficult because you, you approach the base of the skull, which is right underneath the brain next to the uh, olfactory nerve, which allows you to have your sense of smell. And right on the lateral side of it is the eye. So certainly don't want to get into either one of those. And one of the things that's been more recent in sinus surgery uh, and that we're, we're just getting here at Brookings is uh, image guidance uh, for sinus surgery where it confused the CAT scan of the patient with the patient's anatomy. So in the middle of the, uh, in, in the OR, I can have instrumentation that when I've uh, calibrated to the computer and to the CAT scan in the patient, then when I put the instrument in the nose up next to the area of tissue that I want to remove, it'll show me on the CAT scan where I'm, what I'm touching. If I still have another ethmoid air cell there or if I'm right up against the eye or up against the skull base near the brain. So it helps kind of make you uh, more accurate safe. with your diagnosis, yeah, with your clean out and more extensive clean out, but still be safe. Wow. I, that, that computerized assistance, you know, where mm -hmm. you know where the heck you are when you're in there is important. I, I, uh, I know that there are people uh, ears, nose, and, peep, and throat people who will take anybody and everybody, CAT scan them, do sinus surgery, and uh, in a kind of a mill sort of a thing that's mm -hmm. not really truly ethical, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, and a lot of people have, a lot of other physicians have that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your take on the ears, nose, and throat sinus surgery mill kind of a thing? There's definitely some people out there that have done that, that have really... Um, kind of tried to streamline it more in a business model, like how can I maximize the amount of testing and the amount of surgery. And, and the amount and of money I make. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's probably um, what has led to a lot of the rules that get put in place, you know, yeah. that become hindrances to, to people who are trying to just practice, hopefully in a more ethical manner. But, but it does, it does happen. It's definitely out there. I think part of the reason with sinus surgery is that the vast majority of people will do well with sinus surgery. Um, there are about 90% success rate with chronic sinusitis at improving their symptoms and making them feel better. Um, but if you take the group of people who have some nasal symptoms, but their CAT scan really doesn't look that bad, and they and perhaps, and they, I probably would say don't need surgery, you can certainly talk them into doing procedures. And uh, there's a placebo effect, and people will feel, um, in some instances, it may, you know, they might breathe a little better through their nose, but. Uh, a lot of times you really, really want to do better when you've had surgery. So um, you don't get a lot of complaints necessarily, but yet you may be doing more surgery than's necessary. Yeah. One of the newer things, too, that's come out that I'm doing is, uh, uh, since 2005 I've been doing, is uh, balloon sinus dilations, which have been a more minimally invasive way to do some surgical opening more, more to uh, precise areas if you just have one sinus as a problem. Mm -hmm. And the balloons don't cause as much damage or disrupt as much tissue. Uh, and I've, prior to my uh, coming to Brookings, my practice in Wilmer, I was uh, doing this in the office awake on patients. And they tolerate it very well, and, and for the right patient, it's a good good procedure. But again, it's something that can easily be abused. Yeah. So. Uh, it's, it makes sense to me that uh, doing surgery and draining areas is a lot better long-term way of handling than 
constant more antibiotic and more antibiotic and more antibiotic yeah. and I, I think if you can physiologically make it work better so that we don't have to go unnatural with this and, and go with the antibiotics that, mm-hmm. that's a good thing and uh, doing it in an ethical way is in my mind you know really good same way with ears you know if you can drain an ear rather than have to go another antibiotic mm-hmm. and another antibiotic and another antibiotic yeah. Yeah, usually with ear tubes, it greatly reduces the number of infections they have for most kids. And if they do get infected, it allows it to drain out of the ear rather than build up all that pain and pressure. And people can treat it with just drops instead of having to be on oral antibiotics. Yeah. Which usually have less you know, side effects. You're not getting the diarrhea and the rashes and all that other stuff and right. generating resistant organisms as much. So. Right. Okay. okay. Well, this is very interesting, and I'm sure the person who wanted to know about sinuses would also like to know how to reach you. Do would they uh, their regular physician uh, recommend that you go, or could they actually call the clinic and make an appointment directly with you if they had sinus problems? Well, I don't require a referral. Um, some insurance companies, however, w- want referrals prior to seeing a uh, specialist. So you probably need to make sure your insurance company is okay with going without a referral. But okay. Either but way it, would be fine. And it would be the yeah. Brookings Medical Clinic. Correct. 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 Okay. I really like the idea of primary care knowing what's going on mm-hmm. and initiating things and being and the then coordinator. Refer, right. and, and just talk to your primary care uh, PA, nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. physician, and say, you know, I, you know, I think this Jonathan guy might be uh, <laughs> someone I'd like to see. The At least Jonathan guy or Dr. Melema. On that note, we're going to take a break. We'll be back right after these words. By living a healthy lifestyle, you can help keep your blood pressure, cholesterol, and glucose or sugar level normal and lower your risk for heart disease and heart attack. A healthy lifestyle includes the following, eating a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy weight, getting enough physical activity, not smoking or using other forms of tobacco, and limiting alcohol use. Talk with your primary care provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings if you have concerns about heart disease. 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Happy to have you listening today. We have both Dr. Rick Holm and Dr. Jonathan Melema with us today. Dr. Melema is an ear, nose, and throat specialist who's uh, recently joined the Brookings Medical Clinic. And before we continue discussion, which has been very interesting, and we had one more caller come in with another question. But, 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 be, but before but, but, I forget yes. it, I want to ask him about sleep apnea. So okay. go, back, go to the question first. All right. Well, before the question even, I did want to mention what your program will be uh, tomorrow night. And tomorrow night, you're going to be talking about violence and abuse, which is not a pleasant topic, but one that does occur in modern day. And you know what? We like to have this show reflect tomorrow night's show, but we had this opportunity with Dr. Melema, and so we said, well, you know, people come in every once in a while with a black eye. <laughs> That's under the yeah. Purvey, yeah. purview of the ears, nose, right. and throat. Yeah. But we don't do, have to talk do about do violence and abuse yes. today, but certainly um, well, you we might be interested in the program tomorrow. But you did want to ask about sleep apnea. I know that. Yes. Should we get to that first? Well, let's talk about head trauma from physical trauma from abuse. Mm-hmm. Do you, you have you seen that kind of thing, uh, and in what in what matter? You know, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. ear trauma, eye trauma, you know, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, we certainly do see facial trauma from abuse, and uh, um, you know, most commonly, it's probably you know more two adult males fighting each other. Uh, our trauma guy, and when we train in Cincinnati. 
his rules were it's always after midnight it's always with alcohol and it's always about a girl with, the, with that. <laughs> and the, then his other rule was that that it's always two guys that got the guy who comes in uh, according to him but yeah. <laughs> all joking aside there definitely is uh, uh you know a lot of trauma the most common thing is probably a fractured nose um, but you can certainly get injuries to the uh, the facial skeletal structures you know, uh, if you get punched in the eye hard enough, you can get an orbital blow-up fracture where the, the lower wall, the underneath the eye, will collapse into the sinus. Um, but, you know, you can fracture the jaw. You, all those bones are just as easily breakable as any other bone in the body. And uh, they're challenging to, to repair because of their three-dimensional anatomy and, uh, and their function. So um, sometimes, well, the nasal bones, usually you can just replace or try to reposition in the first couple weeks after the injury. But a lot of the other fractures will require some sort of wiring or plating systems to get the bones to be stable and stay uh, in a you know, physiological place position. until they can solidify. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to cast the face. No, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. And, you know, casting the nose, do you cast the nose anymore? Uh, we, I usually put a splint on after reducing the fracture mm -hmm. and uh, leave that on for a week. But really the bone of the nose, it's going to take about six weeks to, to be stable enough to really sustain its normal kind of impacts without uh, shifting. So... Uh, that's the challenge. A lot of times it's a sporting injury, you know, and, they, and kids want to keep playing, but um, I, I usually leave it up to their discretion, but tell them if you get hit again, it's, it's going to move if it happens two weeks from now. So. Yeah, oof done. Better off to not keep playing. While you were talking, we had a question come in about a uh, problem with opioid addiction. Mm. This caller would like to know, we recognize, and I think everyone is aware of the terrible opioid addiction that is uh, throughout our country, they, uh, this caller would like to know what the doctor's opinion is on using CBD oil for pain relief rather than opioid. So let's start with Jonathan. I, I, can, I have a comment CBD too. oil. Uh, yeah, so they're referring to cannabis uh, or uh, marijuana type uh, medications to relieve pain. And most of the pain I'm dealing with is going to be a, a acute pain, uh, you know, post-operative, that kind of uh, procedure procedural generated pain so in those situations I try to uh, use more non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs which would include like ibuprofen and Aleve and things like that nature and Tylenol but uh, we still do use some narcotics for the short term but we really try to keep them to a uh, small number of pills uh, as far as chronic pain relief usually that's going to be more along the uh, primary care physicians uh, purview as well as pain physicians uh, so I think that probably be more up uh, My alley. your alley mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I, my sense is that uh, CBD is something that's exploding right now. Everybody's talking about it because it's, it's offering some people help. Plus, people are marketing it. It's making money. It's making some money for somebody. Uh, my, I think that the data is not quite in, but there's been a lot of data that has uh, been uh, uh, presented that it decreases nausea, it settles a person's anxiety, it reduces pain, and, uh, and those are good things. Uh, and the, the risk is significantly less than the opioids. Mm. So I am a believer, and uh, I think you know, we should be moving in the direction of at least medicinal um, cannabinoids uh, and uh, for for the arsenal to help people, uh, particularly at the end of their lives, uh, when they have medical problems and they have severe pain. But I, you know, so my, there's my answer. Yes, 
So we don't have a complete answer, but that, no, we do have a complete. That's your answer, but as you say, the science is still out there. We're still not sure of the answers, other than we have seen that there is relief. For you people. know, and it's probably the oldest drug that we have uh, uh, out there. I mean, we've got records of people using uh, the cannabinoids in 5,000 years ago in China. Uh, so, I mean, it's not a new deal. Okay. One question I have is, are opioids still being di um, prescribed to people? Oh, yes. Oh, and yeah. because, even with all of this out here, why are they still being prescribed? Because they... They really do reduce pain, I take it. They do. Uh, the, the most important pain they reduce is blockage of a smooth muscle tube. You know, the lips to anus, the biliary tract, the, the uh, bladder, the kidneys, all those are, and the uterus are smooth muscle tubes squeezing when they get into spasm. The opioids are magical. But okay. they're not, opioids are not really good for musculoskeletal. That's why Tylenol is always added because Tylenol is better. Tylenol is better, okay. Uh, you know, and chronic pain, you get yourself into, tr I mean, the, and the problem with opioids is, uh, not, uh, is that you get tachyphylaxis. After three or four days of it, it no longer works. You gotta go higher dose, higher dose, higher dose, higher dose. Which of course is dangerous. So if your doctor prescribes opioid, you can be cautious, but you should trust your doctor's prescription yes. and hope that they limit it. And get off the stuff as much as, as fast okay. as you can. Well, this has been an enjoyable show for me. I hope you've all enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program and we'll listen again to the Prairie Doc brought to you by the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. Visit us at www.prairiedoc.org. Thanks, Dr. Melema, for joining us today. It's Thanks for having me. Here. We okay. do appreciate it, Jonathan. We do. Thank and thank you, Rick. That's all till next week. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, Bob. And stay healthy out there, people.